Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash jumpers podcast. Now, this week, we take a look at some giant killings in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup from 2008. Mush the Matchman is live from the Riverside to see Cardiff City take on Gareth Southgate's Middlesbrough. Dan's Maverick of the Week is nine feet tall, and this issue's madman is an absolute lunatic with a dodgy French accent even though he's actually a scouser. So, what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Proper cup tie here at Bramall Lane. Derek Geary, a man who started his career at Rivermount Boys of Findlas, has the ball. He plays a 1-2 with Keith Loves upon Gillespie. Geary, Geary's cross. Richard OG Don pokes a foot out. City haven't cleared the lines here. It's fallen to Big John Stud. I mean, Stead. He shoots, he scores! Sheffield United double a lead. Brian loves it in. Robson doesn't react. Maybe he's hung over. Bramall Lane is bouncing. Sven Horney, Goring Eriksson has work to do here. Is the cup set on? These next two men love anything football related on the telly. And they have some go-to guilty pleasures when it comes to TV shows. Dan absolutely loves Soccer AM. And sometimes, when his missus goes to bed, he takes a notion and watches old episodes of Footballer's Wives. He loves every episode, apart from the one where Chardonnay's breasts catch on fire during her hen do as he he finds it hard to watch. The Matchman's favourite retro football shows are Renford Rejects and Cartoon The Hurricanes. He sometimes uses inspiration from The Hurricanes to wind up opponents on the pitch and once whispered into an Inniskillen Rovers player's ear, storm time's coming to you today. It's Daniel McIntyre and Connor Elliott, also known as Dan and Bush The Matchman. Dan, how are we doing? I'm, I'm doing great, Stephen. A little bit tired this morning after my uh, Footballers Wives marathon last night, but I'm okay. Footballers Wives was a mad show. It was a mad show, and I think a lot of it was based on true stories. <laughs> <laughs> and here, Dan, I know you're a big fan of bad girls as well, right? Is it true that <laughs> Tanya from Footballers Wives is in Bad Girls? That's the same character. That is true. Yeah. She, so she goes to yeah she goes to jail in Footballers Wives and ends up in uh, Bad Girls. Love it. Love it. Too much shows. Too much shows. Matchman, you loved some retro shows there as well. But I love the Hurricanes now. Jeez, the 
they had a few tussles now, even though the catchy thing tuned to, didn't they? Hurricanes. Oh, that was it. Storm times coming to you, did they? Like, <laughs> I know. So. But it used to be mad in hurricanes because they'd start the match and then something would happen that they'd mm-hmm. have to like get a helicopter out of the game, but then they'd always end up back on the pitch at the end of it to win the game. They were multi- <laughs> they were multitasking. Uh, so, lads, we're taking a now look back at 2008 today. Dan, any memories from this period of football? Well, we were officially, sorry, legally allowed to go out on the town. And um, there was plenty of uh, £2 paint Friday nights, depending on who we played on the Saturday. Normally, if it was a home fixture, we would find ourselves out on a Friday night. And then, of course, out on the Saturday for the post-mortem after our Saturday fixtures. Great times watching some brilliant players professionally and enjoying some ball ourselves. Matchman, is that a long sleeve number you've got on for me this week? It is indeed, Stephen. I can't believe it. Yes, the kit I'm wearing is the Fulham away from 2007-2008 season. A large white v-neck, which was contrast to the own kit, which had a vintage colour. Kit designers were Nike, with no suspect dealings in the making at all, as they got their trademark swoosh in front of the stripy number. Sponsored by LG, who gave Yan Casey Keller a free 50-inch TV, which was delivered by fellow Fulham keepers Tony Vat 19 Warner and Anthony Bulb Head Niemi. But they dropped the TV when delivering it a touch of the butter fingers. Some of the men blessed toward this kit were Martin High Voltage Volts, Paul Egghead Koncheski, Russian gangster Schmierton, and Danny Slaphead Murphy. Northern Irish heroes Aaron Hughes, Chris Bird, and David Healy. Soccer guys invaded with Clint the Sprint Dempsey, Johnson, not Michael, Bocanegra, and club captain Brian McBride. Fruity Boots Kamara, Hangtime Hangelin, and Cheeky Chappy Jamie, you know the drill, Bullard. Overseeing these men to wear this kit for the first part of the season was Laurie Sanchez, who then was sacked and replaced with the turtle dove man himself, Roy Duncan's toy chest Hodgson. The kit I'm wearing is Fallen Away from 2007-8 season. Oh, that is lovely. What a side as well. Some retro characters coming up in there. Dan, are you going to let him away with this long sleeve just because it's Fulham, it's the Turtle Doves, it's Roy Hodgson? Are you in in a good mood today to let him off with this long sleeve? He saved himself there at the end with the King of the Turtle Doves or the Master of the Turtle Doves, uh, Roy Hodgson taking over from Laurie Sanchez. I'm feeling maybe the Mushman needed a change because there was a change in management, so I'm going to let this one slide. Good stuff. And what have you got on for us today, Dan? Yes, today I'm wearing the Everton home kit from the 2007-2008 season. The design had a white v-neck with a lovely yellow trim around the edges with two white diamonds on each shoulder. A little bit jazzy in there for no reason, but it's part of the shirt and I like it. Of course, blue is the main colour on this beauty and it has the classic Everton badge. Sponsored by the beautiful Chang Beer. Kit designed by mushroom makers and 90s kings Umbro, who had settled the heads in the mid-noughties. Managed by David Moyes, aka Mo Sislak, and finished a brilliant fifth in the Premier League this season. Players, oh my goodness, who wore this jersey. Tony Hibbert and Leighton Baines, Yobo, Lescott, Kendall, Mikel Orteta, party lover Andy van der Meda, kangaroo Tim Cahill, Phil Lesser-Neville, Jack robbed Sunderland Rodwell, Phil and Grant, Cordy and Gravison, Benjamin Yakubu Button, Belfast Tash, Stephen Pienaar, and Max Branning, Andy Johnson. What a kit. And the lay of the word has got a classic look, Everton 07-08. I completely forgot about Stephen Pienaar. He was 
He was brilliant for Everton, wasn't he? He was a very tricky winger for Everton, but mostly overshadowed, in my opinion, by his Belfast moustache. That <laughs> probably took a yard off his pace. Um, but yeah, a tricky little player. Okay, now it's time to look back at the best and worst bits of business of the 2007-2008 season. This is Transfer Business. <laughs> Yes, Stephen, and my five best bits of business are as follows. In at five, it's Gary Cahill, who moved from Aston Villa to Bolton Wanderers for £5.5 million. I cannot believe Aston Villa sold this man. He was a, he's a top centre-back and would be for a number of years. Oh, what might have been for him at Aston Villa. In at number four, it's Phil Jagielka, who made the move from relegated Sheffield United to Everton. And David Moyes snapped big fill up for four million pounds what a signing he would prove to be for Everton he stayed there over 10 years and more than proved his worth in at number three it's Fernando Torres and yes Rafa Benitez after signing 33 strikers in two seasons had finally found his man as he signed Fernando from Atletico Madrid for 20 million pounds plus Luis Garcia and what a signing Fernando would prove to be for Liverpool really giving them that edge and forming a good partnership with Steven Gerrard. And at number two, it's Carlos Tevez, who moved from West Ham United to Manchester United in a two-year loan deal reported cost of £25 million. We will never know the truth about this deal. There's nothing I could find to tell me otherwise, but that is something that came up consistently. It was a £25 million two-year loan deal. Tevez was a huge hit at Manchester United before moving on to Manchester City, but in those two years that he spent... Uh, at the Red Devils he won everything in sight and was a very very good signing Matchman what is it about these Argentinian South American players they're owned by a syndicate they're cockfighting in their spare time what is it about these guys why can't they just sign for a club no funny business I, I was always stumped by Tevez, as Danos mentioned there. We still don't know who owned him. You know, was it a, a syndicate, a consortium? Was it was he won on a poker game? Nobody knows. You know, he was a brilliant player, but uh, everywhere he went, there was a bit of controversy with him regarding who owned him. And at number one, and I've went for potential this week in a season of strange deals, and I've went for Gareth Bale, who moved from Southampton to Tottenham Hotspurs for £7 million. What a piece of potential Tottenham had bought. Who would have believed the career Gareth Bale would go on to have? But clearly, the men at Spurs seen something in him. And he would turn down moves to Arsenal and Manchester United to go to Tottenham to guarantee himself a better chance of first-team football. But it all worked out in the end. A great piece of business all round. And when you consider that he left later on for somewhere between 80 and £90 million, what a bit of business. A lovely deal, Dan. Um, he had that mad stat, didn't he, when he was playing at left-back where he hadn't won a game in any game he'd played he or did. something? He did. Right. Yeah. He did. An outrageous uh, sort of thing to be carrying, carrying around on your shoulders. And I'm sure there were certain games, because this is probably plays in managers' minds as well, there were probably certain games where like, oh, I can't blame the day because he's jinxed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he was held back a little bit in his, in his development. But look, I mean, he was never a left-back. The man, has, and he went on to prove that when um, Harry Redknapp came along and played him further up the pitch and had that great spell with uh, under Andre Villas-Boas as well. And we all know what he did at Real Madrid. A uh, world-class player, Doris Bale. Matchman, have you got some worse bits of business for us? 
In at number five is Rolando Bianchi. 8.8 million pound from Regina to Manchester City. Horny Swede Sven Goran Eriksson took a punt on the Italian. Well, Sven took a punt on a few players in his time and signed no fewer than 10 players this season. Bianchi only notched four goals in 19 appearances, which was actually City's second top goal scorer that season. He criticised English cuisine and alcohol culture and stated how he would never become a full international unless he returned to Syria he was loaned out to Lazio in January and never returned as Sven brought in Benjani and Bianchi never did become an Italian international. Number four, it's Kieran Dyer. Dyer completed the move to West Ham for £6 million from Newcastle United. He was blighted by injury and only made 34 appearances in four years where he never completed a full 90 minutes once and debut, he scored no goals and only had one assist. At West Ham, he was one of their biggest earners and under the ownership of Sullivan, not the keeper Neil, Dyer was told to follow Dean Ashton in the retirement. Dyer said no and demanded a £1 million release bonus. Sullivan said no and finally he let his contract run down, costing him nearly £450,000 for every match he played in. And we called Darren Anderton a sick note. You obviously went to that Leeds and Newcastle game when Dyer was probably in his pomp and mm. ran the show. Sad here to see a player a few years later, just, just a waste. Oh, he had no luck with injuries and even then, in his new, his Newcastle days, uh, as brilliant as he was, and I, I loved watching him live. He was so quick and skillful. He he had injuries and they just slowed him down. And at that time, West Ham were making some mad moves in the transfer market. They were kind of signing all around them for the sake of signings. But certainly, injuries deprived them of having a really, really top career. I think if he'd have stayed fit at Newcastle, his next move wouldn't have been a West Ham United. It would have been a much bigger club. Number three, it's Alan Hutton from Rangers to Tottenham Hotspur for £9 million. Hutton had starred for the Jurors, so one day Ramos, who replaced Martin Yole, a Spurs manager, brought Hutton in to fight for right back with Pascal Shambonda. This worked as he started the League Cup final, which Spurs won, beating Chelsea. However, that was as good as it got for Alan, and 55 league appearances in three and a half years, he was loaned out to Sunderland before getting a permanent move to Aston Villa. Number two, it's David Nugent. £6 million from Press North End to Portsmouth. After both Sunderland and Portsmouth had bids in the region of £6 million accepted for the player, Nugent was eventually unveiled as a Pompey player at a press conference alongside John Utaka, a man who may have been 65 at the time of his transfer. After only being signed for the club, a few weeks later, Portsmouth manager Harry Redknapp publicly stated Nugent would be free to leave the club if the right offer came in to help fund a move for more players. Come on, Harry, give the lad a chance. 18 months at the club to notch his first premiership goal, which was against his former manager, Harry Redknapp, at Tottenham Hotspur. In three seasons and 34 appearances in the Premier League for Pompey, he only notched three goals. So maybe Harry had a point. He did help them win the FA Cup. And in 2016, Nugent served as best man at former teammate Jimmy Vardy's wedding. What a party that must have been. And do you remember this signing at the time? Like, Nugent was seen as this New England hero that was going to come in and light up the Premier League. What happened? Well, the opposite happened. He was a, a, a big fish in the Championship and sometimes these deals work out. Um, Roy Keane, I feel, had a very lucky escape 
with Nugent not bringing him to Sunderland because he would have been on, on big wages there. And Harry, you know, he would have coaxed him over, you know, I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to do that for you, this is what's going to happen, you're going to do brilliant things at Portsmouth. It doesn't happen. He even had an England cap by that point as well. He stole a goal um, on his England debut as well, if anyone ever, any listeners want to go go and search that on YouTube, the ball is going over the line, he runs and then boots it. <laughs> and they, they're quite brave. 18 months for your first league goal and says everything and an example of maybe a player who just wasn't ready for the and number one, it's Alfonso Alaves. Middlesbrough boss Gareth Southgate shelled out a club record 12.5 million to bring Alves to the Riverside from Dutch side Hervin. Alves had a better scoring record in Holland than the Brazilian Ronaldo as he notched 45 goals in 39 games. Got off to a fairly decent start to his Borough career, a brace against Manchester United in the snow and a hat-trick against Manchester City on the last day of the season in an 8-1 demolition. But it was the following season, a record of four goals in 31 games as Middlesbrough were relegated. He did go on to have a career in the Qatar League where goals were rewarded with luxury cures. And that concludes my worst bits of business. Is that why Dan's got Faye Ferrari sitting in the driveway? You get a car for every goal, Dan? <laughs> oh, he only scored one goal in five seasons, so... Uh... <laughs> No such luck. Dan, were you happy to see another Dutchman in the in the Premiership at this stage, or were you thinking this guy's a bluffer? I do remember this deal coming in, and he came with a big reputation, as uh, the match manager said about his record in Holland, and I thought Southgate got a steal. Clearly, they didn't do their homework on the type of person he was, the type of personality he was. They weren't able to look after him. He wasn't able to deal with weather conditions and so on, and a terrible bit of business, and... I think uh, Gar Southgate was a young manager at the time and probably he was found out a little bit in the transfer market with the signings that he made for Middlesbrough, which obviously resulted in them getting relegated a year later. So a terrible piece of business and a steep learning curve for young Southgate. Lads, I've got a wee bizarre bit of business for you and um, you, you'll all know what this one is. And it's Steve Sidwell who signed for Chelsea on a free transfer. Now, People at the time raised eyebrows because Chelsea already had a midfield that contained Michael Balak, Michael Essien, Frank Lampard. Mm-hmm. And where would Sidwell even fit in here? He said, you know, I'm not here to make up the numbers. But the bizarrest thing about this whole transfer is when he gets a call from Jose Mourinho, Mourinho invites him up to his house. And Sidwell arrives at his house and there's security at Mourinho's house and security let him in. And uh, he says, you know, I'm Steve Sidwell, I've got a, a meeting with Jose. Okay, in you go. So, so Sidwell is sitting in Mourinho's house in his living room. Mourinho is nowhere to be seen. He can hear Mrs. Mourinho making the dinner and he has clearly just intruded on the house without Jose actually inviting him down. Jose eventually comes down the stairs completely surprised to see Steve Sidwell sitting in, in his living room. But they go on and talk business anyway. And Steve Sidwell signs for Chelsea. And the most bizarre thing of this whole transfer is Mourinho gives him the number nine shirt. Dan, what do we make of this? Fair play, Steve Sidwell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think this game, is, we're not too far off the end of Jose and his first reign at Chelsea. And Roman had pulled the purse strings back a little bit. Uh, the previous summer, they went big on Balak and Chivchenko. 
and Jose wasn't too happy with certain things at Stamford Bridge and he wasn't given much pot in the summer of 2007. I think he brought in Sidwell, brought in Claudio Pizarro on a free as well. So, you know, let's be honest, Mourinho was never going to make Steve Sidwell a regular at Chelsea. And I think he might have given the number nine shirt as a bit of a wind-up. Uh, that's my theory on it. Yeah. Uh, he might have been winding uh, the owner up a little bit. For a player, I said, well, you can't turn that move down if you're him. No. No matter who else is in for you. If you have a chance to go to a big club, you have to give it a Chelsea drag. fan as well. And a Chelsea fan as well. So there you go. Matchman said, well, has went on record and said that when the Chelsea players found out that Mourinho was going, that a lot of them were in tears. In fact, Didier Drogba was on the floor in tears and what I want to know is how did he end up on the floor was there contact oh I'd say there was minimal contact but he went down like a sack of spuds okay that's what I thought so it's nil nil here in the last FA Cup tie of the weekend what a chance for both these teams to reach the semi-final Bristol Rovers mind you did go close with Ricky Lambert heading wide he looks a handful the Memorial Stadium looks badly cut up there. There's more grass on Bob Marley's pillow than there is on this pitch. Chris, don't be so blunt, controls the ball from Ismail Miller. Holds, he stepped up. Is he trying to play offside? Well, it clearly hasn't worked. Bentner controls it. He powers forward. Play is bouncing off him. Bentner with a primary school toe vote from 20 yards out. Rovers keeper, Captain Phillips. No, not the film with a touch of the parries. It's fallen in the box. James Morrison with a tap in. The Baggies lead! The League One side did help them with a bag of cold playing offside and Captain Phillips with the utterly bottily hands. It's Bristol Rovers no West Bromwich Albion 1. Dan, are you ready for this match between Barnsley and Chelsea? I am very much ready for this, Steve. In fact, this game dawned on me that I watched it with you and your father in your kitchen with a few cans of harp and we fell in love with Jamaican winger Jamal Campbell Rice. Was this before a big night out? Of course it was. It was a Saturday evening kickoff live on the BBC. And yeah, we were getting the, getting the car out in before we went out. The few listeners, you know. Oh, I love it. Did you watch the highlights with Motson and Lawrenson back in this one? I did indeed, yeah. Very good. It just gives me the warm feels, lads. Does yeah. it give you the warm feels, Mush? It does indeed. Motson <laughs> was brilliant. Okay, Barnsley versus Chelsea in the FA Cup quarter final. Dan, what happened in this one? Yes, Stephen, and we have a packed Oakwell with 22,410 fans in attendance, refereed by Steve Bennett. The FA Cup sixth round tie between Barnsley and Chelsea, and Barnsley lined up with a classic 4-4-2 FA Cup formation with Luke Steele in goals, a back four of Dennis Souza, Steve Foster, Bobby Hassel, and Rob Kosluck, a midfield four of Marciano Van Homet. Jamal Campbell-Rice, Martin Devaney and Captain Brian Howard and a front two of Ferenzi and Odie Jayu. Chelsea would make some changes of course like most big clubs but had a packed team full of internationals and a 4-3-3 formation of Carlo Gudicini in goals, Belletti, centre-back prime of Carvalho and John Terry, Wayne Bridge getting a rare game at left back in for Ashley Cole to see him beside John Terry is a thing of beauty looking back. A midfield three of Michael Ballack, Michael Essien and Joe Cole. And a front three of tiny man Sean Ray Phillips, Florin Maluda and through the middle, Nicholas and Nelka. Barnsley had the better of the early exchanges with Campbell Rice and Brian Howard causing problems for the Chelsea back four. In particular, Belletti, who just didn't seem to fancy this cup tie. On the 20-minute mark, 
Odigeu went close for Barnsley after a mistake from Carlo Gudicini, but his effort went just wide of the post, spurring the Italians' blushes. Firenze, his strike partner, would hit the post in the 36th minute with a brilliant effort on the half volley, turning John Turry spectacularly, but the woodwork denying him. This would also be the chance of the half, with Chelsea lashing a few long-range efforts wide and high from Joe Cole, Michael Ballack, Michael Essien and Nicholas Anelka, another man who didn't seem to fancy this cup tie. Nil-nil at half-time. Start of the second half, Chelsea were much better and John Turry set up Anelka, who saw a good effort deflected just over the bar in the 56th minute. John Turry, it would seem, the only Chelsea player leading the fight in this game. Barnsley, however, continued to battle hard and play with style in the form of skipper Howard. And in the 66th minute, Dennis Souza hit a hopeful long cross into the box for Odijeu to outjump Italian Gudicini and head into an empty net. What a time to get your first goal in 29 games. The Oakwell were in jubilation and Barnsley finally had something to hold on for after their powerful efforts. Chelsea would huff and puff, sending on Kalu and Pizarro and even throwing John Turry up front. Carvalho almost saw red for cutting Barnsley skipper Howard in half and standing up and pleading innocence to Steve Bennett. However, he would get a yellow. Barnsley really deserved to hang on to their victory and they would book their place in the semi-final of the FA Cup. What a battle, what a performance, what a team, what a cup run. Barnsley won, Chelsea nil, and they are on their way to Wembley. Ah, oh, match man. A good old school pitch invasion at the end, Mosh. Were you happy to see that? I was indeed, Steve. I love a good pitch invasion. I think it's got a wee bit harder in the modern game to get away with that, plus with CCTV everywhere as well. But I think the stewards just, probably Barnsley fans themselves, just said, ah, come on, let's have a whale of a time here. Get on the pitch. Groundsmen, though, not so happy. Dan, there was a few players on show here. Rice Campbell. What ever happened to Ambrosio? I mean, Rice Campbell. <laughs> Yeah, the Jamaican international, he was a very good player. I was impressed with him on this night and um, he had a decent season for, for Barnsley overall. Um, they were just really up for this cup run. I think uh, beating Liverpool in the previous round would have gave them a lot of confidence playing against Chelsea and they just thought, we've beaten Liverpool, we can do this. We're at home, the pitch is hard, it's a windy evening. You know, we've got a few Chelsea players rolling up with gloves and long sleeve jerseys. Let's get stuck into them. We've got a few powerhouses. Let's give it a go and see what Chelsea are made of. And they caught Chelsea off guard. It was a handful of Chelsea players who were up for it. Out of 11, that isn't enough. And overall, they deserve the win. Are you accusing some of the Chelsea players of maybe being a bit soft for away at Barnsley? I definitely am. Hey, there was a few who were soft, um, in particularly Belletti and Anelka on the night, who just weren't up for it. Um, and then you had a couple who were a bit cold, the players who hadn't played in recent weeks and they were just thrown in and expected to deliver. And Wayne Bridge, Joe Cole and Sean Wright Phillips, um, I would include in that. Although, to be fair, being English players and knowing the FA Cup well, they really should have been Chelsea's best performers. And Carvalho was off colour that night as well, playing against two strikers rather than one, which he would be used to week to week in Champions League and Premier League. And really, of note, only only Michael Ballack and John Terry were up for it. Barnsley end up finishing 18th in the championship, but they knocked out two, two of the top four. People refer to the magic of the FA Cup. What do you think that magic is? What, what do you think makes those nights possible for a team like Barnsley? I think the buzz, the atmosphere, 
the whole the whole build up the whole after the beat Liverpool they've got a bit of confidence they're like we're one game away from a, a, a semi-final but in terms of the FA Cup the whole build around the Barnsley area leading up to the Chelsea game would have been unbelievable I'm sure they sacrificed some league form in preparing for the Chelsea game as well in terms of their setup of training the, the whole area would have been behind them and you see that you know they've got the balloons they've got the whole lot it's an evening kick off it's got that nighttime feel that classic cup encounter the fans did not stop for the whole 90 minutes and that can give players that extra 10% that they need um, in the final 20 minutes 30 minutes after taking the lead everything about a cup tie the pitch was hard the ball was bouncy the big team wasn't up for it the smaller team was league forms and divisional positions go out the window and it was a real classic upset and probably one of the last brilliant cup runs from a smaller division team Brilliant stuff, Matchman. There is a, a striker in the Barnsley squad. We've mentioned him before, but he didn't get on the pitch this day either. John Mackin was at Barnsley. Oh, Mackin was... Oh, God, he's been robbed again, has he? By Jeez. a man who hadn't scored in 29 games. At least he scored to win the Cup day. Uh, his time at City, he's, he's sitting on the bench, and David James is throwing up top, and he does nothing. Jeez, oh, poor Mackin, hey? Jeez, the life and times. That could be a good book, the life and times of John Mackin. <laughs> John Mackin. <laughs> no doubt Steve will buy it. Yes, my mad man of the week is Joey Barton. Yes, it's heart and Joey Barton. The life and times of Joseph Anthony Barton, his initials spell the word job, which is very fitting as he sneaked a few of these on and off the pitch and is also good friends with Ricky Hatton. Barton's career and life have been marked by numerous controversial incidents and disciplinary problems. He was sentenced to six months behind bars for common assault and a fray. During an incident in Liverpool City Centre, which showed CCTV, Barton punching a man 20 times and attacking a teenager. This wasn't the only time Barton had bothered in Liverpool City Centre as he broke a pedestrian's leg while driving his car through the early hours in the morning. He also was arrested for assault for a bus stop in the city centre with a taxi driver. Barton, born and raised in Merseyside, had a run-in with a 15-year-old Everton supporter while he was in Thailand while on pre-season. Barton was verbally abused and kicked in the shin. He didn't react kindly to this and had to be restrained by teammate Richard O.G. Dunn. Barton was sent home after this. No Thai cuisine for you, Joey. This wasn't the only clash with Everton supporters as he walked off at full time at Goodison Park and showed his rear end in all its glory to the Toffee fans. Barton underwent anger management therapy at the order of city manager Stuart Pearce whose nickname was Psycho, double standard Stuart, a man who put David Traffic Cone James up top when he would a striker on the bench. I've hardly spoken about what Barton did on the pitch. As a young lad, he was told he was too small to be a footballer. Ah, oh, poor Joey. His first red card came in an FA Cup tie at half-time. City 3-0 down at the lane. Barton approached the ref and abused him. He was given an early bath. City down to 10 men, surely they wouldn't come back. Well, they did, winning 4-3 without Barton. What does that tell you? Barton got the hump and stormed out of City Stadium after not being included in a matchday squad against Southampton. A pre-season friendly against Doncaster Rovers. Surely nothing could go wrong here. 
Well, Borton saw down a player and sparked a 10-man brawl. A Christmas party, a time for Borton to let off some steam. Well, Joey talks thick after a youth player, Jamie Tandy, tried to set fire to Borton's Ben Sherman shirt. Borton reacted by putting a lit cigar out on young Tandy's eye. A scummy act from a scummy man. In Borton's defence, you play with fire, you're going to get burnt, Tandy. He scored against Fulham in the celebration scene. City teammate Bernardo Carani removed the corner flag and knight the kneeling Barton. I think you'll be waiting a long time for that to happen, Joey. At City, he was banned from speaking to the media after previous comments regarding his fellow teammates. His time at City was up after an incident at training where he assaulted his fellow teammate Dabo. Dabo said that he'd been hit several times and was left unconscious and had to go to hospital after suffering injuries to his head. And as a result, Barton was arrested and later charged with assault and was sentenced to a four-month suspended prison sentence plus 200 hours of community service. Barton was also charged with filing conduct by the FA, fined and banned for six games. Enter Big Sam with no bung involved, throwing Barton a bone with Newcastle United. Joey was at the centre of attention in the Tynemere Derby after a high challenge on Black Cat's Dixon at two. Referee Martin Atkinson, not related to Ron or Rowan, didn't see this. News of the world ran a headline, ban him! Sunderland fans wouldn't forget this, and the following season they threw missiles at Barton while he warmed up. Barton was accused of making a racist remark to Aston Villa's Gabriel Bognahoe. Professional lip readers said there was not enough evidence. In May 2009, Newcastle announced the suspension of Barton, and Barton was told to stay away from the club. Word on the street, this resulted from a dressing room bust-up with Alan Worsher, Smile Shearer and assistant manager Ian. Are hey, you guys Dowie? Shearer accused Barton of a coward's tackle, to which Barton replied that he was the best player at the club. Shearer said that Barton was not. Barton was transfer-listed. Newcastle were relegated, but nobody came in for Barton. But he helped them gain promotion back to the Premier League where he punched fantasy football bargain Morton Gamps Patterson, resulting in a three-game ban, and he made a rude gesture at Fernando Torres. Arsenal players took offence to Barton on several occasions. I wouldn't blame them. Nasri tripped him, Diaby choked him, and Song stamped on his back. Barton later said he was on the verge of joining Arsenal and decided to sign for QPR under the management of fellow madman Neil Warnock, whose love child is Paddy Kenny. At QPR, Barton was involved in a physical confrontation with Wolves player Carl Henry. Barton accused Henry of trying to hurt people. Glass houses, Joey. Glass houses. Joey headbutted Norwich midfielder Bradley Johnson. Straight red card there again, Joey. Barton was skipper at QPR and kept the big C armband after Warnock was sacked and replaced by Sparky Mark Hughes. QPR fans even booed Barton in one game and cheered when he was subbed off. The famous City game where they won the title in the last seconds thanks to Aguero! Joey was sent off against his former employer after an elbow on Tevez. Wouldn't blame you there, Joey. Barton proceeded then to kick Sergio Aguero in the back of the knee and attempted to headbutt Vincent Company. What a size of a head that would have been to headbutt. Barton had to be dragged away from the pitch by former teammate and pundit for 60 broadcasters, Michael Richards. Barton was then charged for three counts of violent conduct, banned for 12 games, stripped of the captain's armband, fined six weeks' wages, which was about half a million pounds, 
and to add salt into the Barton wound, he wasn't allowed on their pre-season tour and told one more bad act he would have his contract ripped up. QPR then shipped him out to Marseille, of all places, where Joey said he only joined them for the coin. While in France, he had an interview where he spoke in English, but with a French twang. Comedy gold listeners, please look it up. He also called Diago Silva an overweight lady boy. He finished off his playing days firstly at Rangers, but this only lasted several months as he was suspended and had his contract terminated after a bust-up with teammate Andy Halliday. Burnley gave him a chance for Sean Dice, a man who eats bowls of bricks for breakfast and washes it down with pints of sawdust, was able to help Barton stay out of trouble until Joey was banned for 18 months after being found guilty of betting charges by the FA. It is rumoured he had placed 1,260 bets over the last 10 years. It wasn't all doom and gloom for Joey. He achieved three promotions to the Premier League with three clubs. He has done a lot of charity work along with Tony Adams to help people with addictions. He has now entered the world of football management. No doubt that will be dull. My madman of the week is Joey Barton. As I say, yesterday I make one tackle and all everybody speak about is this tackle. Nobody speaks about uh, a 50-yard pass that kills Belmont and, and it causes a red card for him. Um, and nobody sh- talks about the shot that um, Landru would have uh, been happy to, to see. You know, he didn't see the ball, never mind uh, have a chance to save it. So for me, it's important that people speak about uh, the qualities I bring as a footballer and... Uh, I'm a little bit bored, you know, from the English media, and hopefully the French media is have more about has more about it than the, the English media and concentrate on uh, uh, li- stupid little uh, incidents like this. Maybe the one criticism of the French league is it's it's a little bit uh, boring, you know. They uh, and I, I can understand, you know. I watch uh, Lille yesterday; they have ten men and they're happy to lose one nil. Uh, you know, they they have ten men and. For me, you might as well lose 5-0 as 1-0, you know, it's still no point. He's Argentine and I'm English. It's big difference, big, big difference. This against the Wolves. This week's Balls Against the Wall quiz is sponsored by the ball Robbie Fowler. Busted Cardiff manager Dave Jones in the face with after Fowler was told he wasn't fit enough for Cardiff's FA Cup final squad. Oh, what a ball. Yes, welcome to the Balls Against the Wall quiz. The quiz right pit down against Mosh to see who has the best football knowledge. The score so far this season is 6-3 to Dan. So Mosh needs to get back on the board here. We are blessed as ever, lads, to have Ua Cantona here taking the scores. Hello, Eric. Eric, what's your favourite FA Cup memory? I am Cantona. Oh, that's my favourite too, Eric. Superb. Lads, this week all the questions are about the FA Cup in the year 2007-2008. The buzzers for this week are any player who scored a goal in the 2007-2008 FA Cup. Dan, who have you went with? Phillips. Oh, would that be Kevin? Oh yes, Kevin Phillips. And Matchman, who have you went with? Shitu! And who did he notch for in the FA Cup? Danny Shutu notch for Watford. Lads, we are playing for the number two single in that week in March 2008, and it is Mercy by Duffy. If Dan wins this week, Mush will surely be asking for some mercy. <laughs> you will know when the quiz is over when you hear this sound. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Question one. Who wore the number one shirt for Portsmouth? Phillips. Yes, Dan. David James. Calamity James is correct. 
Which Premier League 100 club player wore number eight for Cardiff City? Phillips. Yes, Dan. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Incorrect. Oh. Matchman. Fowler. Fowler is correct. Who sponsored the FA Cup? Yes, Dan. Axa. Incorrect. Oh. Mush. Eon. Eon is correct. (laughs) Eon, very good. Egon. (laughs) Who was the ref in the FA Cup final? Shitu. Yes, Mush. Mike Dean. Mike Dean is correct. What a shit. Loves a referee, this man. (laughs) What phone company sponsored West Brom shirts? Shitu. Yes, Dan. T Mobile. Correct. Who did West Brom beat 5 1 to reach the semi finals? Shit, Yes, Mush. Bristol Rovers. Correct. Who partnered Wayne Rooney up front for Manchester United in their oh. shock loss to Portsmouth in the quarters? Shit, Yes, Mush. Tavares. Tavares is correct. Which ex England and West Ham player adjudicated every round of the FA Cup draw on the telly? Used to stand in the back, lads, watching them pick the ball. Phillips. Yes, Dan. Trevor Brooking. Correct. It yes. Is Trevor what a shite, Dono. What a shite. Who knocked Liverpool out of the FA Cup? Phillips. Yes, Dan. Barnsley. Barnsley is correct. Who was the last Englishman to win an FA Cup before Harry Redknapp? Phillips. Yes, Dan. Terry Venables. Incorrect. Oh. Mush. Ah, it's a punt, George Graham. Incorrect. It was Joe Royal. Joe Royal, 95. Yeah. Forgot about that one. Who scored the winner in the FA Cup final? Shit. Oh, that was Mush. Oh, Canu. Canu is correct. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. We're going over to Eric with the scores. What are the scores, Eric? Daniel. Catra. Conier. Cease. Oh, Mush has pulled one back. He's pulled one back. There will be no mercy Ooh. for Percy. It is 6-4. Enjoyed that one. Very good question. It's a bit of knowledge there. Uh, learned as well. Very good quiz. This match of the week. Bloody hell. Welcome to the match of the week. It's just finished at the Riverside between Middlesbrough and Cardiff City. The Premier League club Middlesbrough against the Championships Cardiff. There couldn't be an upset here, surely. Must the match, man. What has happened at the Riverside? Yes, the David Blaine Shazam magic has continued on this coupon buster of an FA Cup as goals from Peter Whittingham and Roger Johnson have championship side Cardiff on the direction of Davy Jones's locker dump Middlesbrough out of the FA Cup and leave Gareth North Fence Southgate with a scundered look on an already pokey face. Borough fans pre-kickoff were coming to the terms with the fact they were now second favourites to win the FA Cup. I'm not even sure they were second favourites when they were last in the final against Chelsea 11 years ago. Big Schnout Southgate played a strong side. He blew his big nose and stuck Robert Hoof straight back into the starting 11 after his spell on the sidelines with a gammy foot. Out goes Jonathan Coffee Grounds. The reliable George Botang benched for Fabio Rochenbach, who is into using his birds for cop fighting. I kid you not. As for Davy Jones's locker, he's made one change from his side's defeat last week at home. Out goes club captain Doran Purse Strings after he scored an OG and tried to blame the wind. Well, he wasn't kidding Jack Sparrows. He walked the plank and trusted to guard the cannon today was Roger Johnson. 
Still no Robbie Fowler in the Cardiff squad. He's still on the shelf after a horror tackle from his own teammate. Doran loose change in my purse at training last year. Poor Fowler still hasn't recovered. The action got underway to a fairly lively Riverside and not too many red empty seats either makes a change. Double-A battery, Alfonso Olives was giving Cardiff defender Glenn Ovens lovins a few early scares. The game was not 10 minutes old when Whittingham gave Cardiff the lead with a great individual effort. He took down a bouncing ball, sent three borough defenders for a taxi and opened up his body like a beautiful free bird and curled the ball from 20 yards out into the top right bins. Mark Schwarzer wouldn't have stopped it if he had the spring of Terry Venable's pet kangaroo, Carton Palmer. Borough are furious though, especially Southgate and his squawky face, as the initial ball was definitely handled by Stephen McPhail before falling to Whittingham. Cardiff had their tails up now as Capaldi found space to cross for Jimmy Floyd Robberbank. He was totally unmarked. He connected with his Dutch diamond, but he sent it wide. Halfway through the first half, Cardiff doubled their lead. Jimmy Floyd Robberbank was caught by officer of the Tyneside Law and cockfighter Rochenbach. Whittingham crossed wonderfully. Johnson escaped Austrian Pogatetz to meet the ball with a diving header and dart the ball past Schwarzer. Not a good day, mate, for him. 2-0. The upset is on. Berra and double-A battery Alaves forced a parry from Peter Ankerman. That's as bad as good as it got for Berra in the first half as Cardiff looking very cosy and heading at halftime. 2-0 up and deservedly so. My Mido used to be Martin Yo's Mido was on for double-A Alves as Southgate uses his beaky nose to shake his team up for the second half. I dare say it'll take a bit more than that, Gareth. Bear in mind you, repeating their first half performance and looking uninterested, disjointed, short of inspiration. Gareth's halftime words must have worked a treat. Borough continue to achieve nothing with possession and Cardiff seem very content to sit on what they've got like a mother hen sitting on an egg ready to hatch. Southgate has picked us a winner from his nose and sent Hoof up top, taking a leaf out of the special one, Hosey's playbook. Trevor Sinclair is on a man who won gold of the season in, the, in this competition in 1997 for a bicycle kick. Hoof with an effort well wide in injury time as good as the gut. Southgate's packer couldn't muster up anything. Mike Dean finally calls time on this cup tie. Cardiff players and fans celebrate like it's the last day of school. Cardiff are going to Wembley for the first time since the 1920s when the BBC was formed. Their chairman, Peter Ridfield, no doubt already spending the prize money. The Riverside, which was half empty before the final whistle, breaks into a chorus of boos, and rightly so, as Southgate and his players have been awful today. Cardiff pre-kickoff hadn't beaten the Premier League opposition since 2002, but then again, the way this season is going under Crow features Southgate and the way they have played today, Burra may not be a Premier League side all that much longer. The magic of the FA Cup is alive and kicking. It's finished here. Middlesbrough nil, Cardiff City 2. Back to you in the studio, Steve. The magic of the FA Cup indeed, Dan. Do you think this was a big shock? Yes, it, it was a big shock. Uh, I think any time a team from a lower division beats a Premiership side, it, it's a shock. The Riverside was a tricky place to go to over the years, so I do feel it was a shock on the day. But Dave Jones had Cardiff organised. They were ready to go. They had some talented players. Uh, Hasselbank, obviously, against his former club. Peter Whittingham, who was, a, who was a lovely footballer. They certainly were showing a few traits of what was to come when a few years later they were getting promoted. 
and Middlesbrough, this Middlesbrough side, probably just coming to the end in terms of, of squad and Southgate was struggling. You mentioned Fabio Rockham back there uh, for his cockfighting abilities. I couldn't believe in it when I actually read this, but police found birds used for cockfighting at a building owned by him in Brazil. And then in 2017, he was arrested on further charges of involvement in the blood sport of cockfighting. Nothing better to do than get himself involved in illegal activities. Did you say blood sport there? Cockfighting is a blood sport. And was Sean claude Van Damme involved with this as well? He hasn't been named in the racket, Dan, but... No, just when you said blood sport there, my eyes lit up, you know, I thought you were, were talking about some sort of martial arts cockfighting that maybe Van Damme was involved with. That was what was in my head, Dan, but I have no evidence to suggest that that actually happened. Matchman, what is it with these Brazilians? And- I do think they are a bit lit. They're not fully there. Maybe maybe they're just bored when they come to England as well, too. Whatever you do in your spare time, it's whatever you do, but as long as it's legal, regal, you know? And to sort of even it up, one header on the middles were said, one absolute <laughs> lunatic on the card of said, Jimmy Floyd rob a bank. We've talked about the Dutchman before, Dan. I haven't really given him a touch because I know how much you love Holland, but this <laughs> man is an absolute lunatic. He was named in 2016 in a sting operation where he basically (laughs) negotiated a deal to work with a fictitious firm looking to become involved in the transfers of footballers. And then, despite him actually managing QPR, he was open to the idea of signing players represented by this fictitious firm. Was he a brilliant striker? He was very good, yeah. That's all right then. I don't, I don't think Dan wants to go into it too much because it would probably break his wee heart. <laughs> oh, no, uh, no, dodgy dealings from Jimmy and, um, well, dodgy dealings from QPR as well. Like, <laughs> no, right. no surprise to see him managing QPR at the time of these these shady deals. So, no, never good to get involved in any, anything dodgy if you're a professional manager, certainly if you're in charge of, that, of a club at the time. So, a big mistake on Jimmy's part and... Probably set him back because he was on the way up. Yes, the dodgy dealings at QPR were they launched their own internal investigation against Hasselbank and then released a statement fully supporting him and said that there was nothing nothing on the ward as yeah. they would do if they were involved. <laughs> if they thought they were going to get some uh, player profits. This week's Maverick of the Week is the one and only Nawanku Kanu. Yes, the tall, gangly, skillful Nigerian striker who had a fascinating career, which began with Federation Works, what a name that is, before moving to Iwan Yanwu National. And he impressed enough there to represent his country at the Under-17 World Championships. It was at these championships where Kanu was scouted and snapped up by Ajax and Dutch madman Louis van Gaal in 1993. Canu proved a hit with Ajax, winning all in sight and played in back-to-back Champions League finals in 1995 and 1996 alongside the likes of the De Boer twins, Yori Lippmann, Clarence Patrick Clavert, Edgar Davids, Danny Blind and his fellow countryman, Vinidi George. Like most of the Ajax squad, they were sold on for profit and Canu was no different. And in the summer of 1996, after impressing at the Olympic Games for Nigeria, 
Keanu was moved to Inter Milan for £4.7 million. However, Keanu sadly soon developed a heart problem that stopped him from playing and showing Inter Milan what he was all about. But some good news came of this as it led to Keanu founding the Keanu Heart Foundation, which helped young African children with heart conditions. What a hero. After such bad luck and needing a fresh start after just 12 games in three seasons with Inter, Keanu made the bold move to join Arsenal and Arsene Wenger in 1999 to add to a fine attack, including Dennis Bergkamp, Nicolas Anelka and Mark Overmars. Keanu was a breath of fresh air for Arsenal and scored some wonderful goals against Derby County, Tottenham Hotspurs, Sheffield Wednesday, Aston Villa and a quite magnificent hat-trick against Chelsea in the 1999-2000 season. Keanu would find himself rotated quite a bit in the coming seasons, however, more than played his part in Arsenal's success in the early noughties and is very much remembered by the Gunners' faithful. And when you think about the attack back then, it was no wonder Wenger rotated with Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, Sylvain Wiltord, Davor Sucker, Francis Jeffers, just to name a few. Keanu's contract with Arsenal ran out in 2004 and seeking first-team football, he joined Brian Cairns Robson at West Bromwich Albion on a free transfer. And he would spend two years at the Hawthorns helping West Brom stay up in 2005. However, they were to get relegated the following season in 2006. Keanu would turn down a new contract with West Brom as he didn't see himself as a championship player and he was quickly moved on to Harry Redknapp's Portsmouth on a free transfer. Keanu would prove a huge hit at Pompey, bringing much-needed flair and something different to their attack. He was also wrapped in cotton wool by Harry Redknapp, who gave Keanu his own driver as the big striker would sometimes be so knackered after a game he would need a wheelchair. This would result in Harry Redknapp and his number two and Keanu's former teammate, Tony Adams, having debates about Keanu's real age. Oh, to be a fly on the wall of those conversations. Portsmouth will, of course, find themselves in financial difficulty and Keanu would drop a court dispute as they owed the big man £3 million. Such was the kindness of Keanu, he decided not to take it any further and help the club. Keanu's international career was glittering. He had a wonderful career spanning 16 years, helping Nigeria win the Under-17 World Championships in 1993. And he won Olympic gold in 1996, where Keanu scored twice in a 4-3 final against Arnhem's Brazil. Watch this game, listeners. Keanu also went to three World Cup finals in 1998, 2002 and 2010. His honours read as follows. 535 club games, 123 goals. For his country, 87 caps and 12 goals. I have no doubt he would have smashed over 100, but for his three-year illness. He won four Dutch leagues, one Champions League, one UEFA Super Cup, one World Intercontinental Cup, one UEFA Cup, two Premier Leagues, three FA Cups, Olympic gold. He was an under-17 world champion. He won two African Player of the Years, two BBC African Player of the Years. He was man of the match in the 2008 FA Cup final and he scored the winning goal at the Emirates in Dennis Burkamp's testimonial for Arsenal. In conclusion, Keanu has had a wonderful career and fascinating life. He was elegant in possession, could pick a pass, a unique talent, could score goals. He was an intelligent player and an unselfish player. This week's Maverick of the Week is Keanu. What a man. When you compare him to Joey Barton, it's just like two different <laughs> two different humans, aren't they? That's why we have the mad men and the mavericks, I suppose. Eh? Keanu, some player. He wore the number four shirt, Dan. 
a tri- it was a tribute to his idol Stephen Keshe, who later coached the Nigerian side. Oh, it was one of his favourite players. Used to wear the number four. You know, he lost those years at Inter Milan. It would have been great to see him and him and Arnaino become together. You know, and they would have tortured it for a few defences back then because he, he had a really good record at Ajax too, Canu. So not deprived those years, and then just needed the fresh start with Arsenal. And good player for Arsenal as well. Um, what was that game you mentioned? The Brazil Nigeria game. Yes, the 1996 Olympic Games final, right? In Atlanta and uh, Nigeria were were losing twice in the game, and uh, Keanu just just took it by the throat and scored twice and stole the show. He was the tournament's best player, and yeah, helped them take over a very talented Brazil team. What age is he now? Seventy-eight. Right, and is he still playing? Or yes, he's playing somewhere. <laughs> Man United searching for a breakthrough, but by God, Harry's heroes digging deep. Soulman Campbell, dustbin distant, and David not so calamity anymore. James at the back in particular. United guilty of being very wasteful in the final third. They have a free kick out in the left after Dayara with his egghead brought down Nanny. No, not my grandmother or yours. Nanny, not Nanny or Nan Bread with a free kick. United have loaded the box in search of a winner. David James comes and catches the ball. He wouldn't have done that in the 90s. James sees United have left two at the back and he sees two pompy players up there. Massive kick by James. Anderson, the party animal, back defending. Oh, he's let the ball bounce. Milan Boris, he's out-muscled him. He manages to use his knee to pass it wide to Harry's love child, Nico Grenshaw. He's free. He advances forward. Both Anderson and Granny Rooney both go to the ball. Nico sucked him in, he scores it back to Barros, the ex-Liverpool man, with a touch inside, chance for Poppy, out comes Scooter, the producer, Kujak, Barros is pulled out by the pole, surely a penalty, it is a penalty, and it's a red card too, now then, what do United do, Kujak was a sob as he came on for Van Damme, Van der Sar early on, I don't believe it, it looks like Rio Ferdinand is going to do goals in this cup tie, United have batted Pompey, but Pompey now have a chance to win it. The matchman describing the penalty there that um, Montari tucked away and sent Portsmouth through to the semi-finals, knocking Manchester United out of the FA Cup. Any chances of a treble were killed. Lads, we watched this one back again. Another giant killing. So that's three giant killings in four games over the weekend of the quarterfinals of this FA Cup. Must you had a look at loads of different years of FA Cups and this was probably the one weekend that stood out where three big boys really went out and the magic of the FA Cup was alive. What did you make of this one? Did Portsmouth deserve to win at Old Trafford? Harry Redknapp in his autobiography said they definitely did. What is the matchman's opinion? Uh, I think Harry's laying there. I think I will give Portsmouth credit on the day. They defended brilliantly as a team and with Diston and Campbell at the back. And James was actually very good. He tipped a shot onto the post and there was a clearance as well too off the lane. Carrick, two yards out, you think it's going in. I think it's a distant gets back there. But uh, United just battered them and Pompey took their one chance. Nico Grantshaw was actually in the wall, which Nanny took the free kick. And fair play to him. He sprinted straight up and was involved in the attack, which led to the penalty. Kujak, Probably a rush of blood to the head came out, but it was just one of those games where the ball just wouldn't go into the back of the net for United, and the furry tail for Pompey continued. Was it a was it a penalty and a red card? Do you feel? Yes, I think Barosh probably has played it as well too. But 
I think when Kujak came out like that there, he's only he's he's asking for contact then and Boris kinda he used his streetways head, so I think it was a penalty and then he's no option but to send him off. I actually lay the blame in terms of watching it back with a Phil Anderson and Rooney. On any other day you'd be saying to them, you know, one of you two should have wiped him out mm-hmm. before he got near the eighteen yard box can you know conceded a free kick and took the yellow card. Neither player did that. They fancied them. They fancied their chances of, of stopping. It was clear as well that Manchester United didn't want to replay. It was very much a cup final type game where Portsmouth were sitting in. They had to talk the replay. You know, the good record of Fratton Park, Manchester United with their schedule and going for the league and Champions League as well. Didn't want that. They were convinced they were going to get the goal and then they get nailed on the break in classic fashion. Do you think Kushak had a touch of the willies or was he right to come out? I think it was just a lack of communication. You had the wrong players tracking, as I said, Anderson yeah. and Rooney and Kushak. They probably didn't speak a whole lot to each other. It might have been a different situation, say if it was Patrice Everett, Michael Corrick tracking back with, with, with Kushak. Not a lot of communication when you've got... Scooter, the producer, Anderson, who was at United for about seven years and couldn't speak a word of English, yes. and then Rooney, the scouser. Yes, <laughs> yes. Have, uh, a Polish DJ, uh, samba dancer, and scouse Rooney, and just now. <laughs> Matchman, uh, Kushak gets sent off, Rio ends up in the bags. How did you think he got on as a keeper? Uh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't have any hopes for Rio now. I don't even want to be practising for penalties during the week. <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> uh, that's clear as well in the penalty. Rio, to be fair to him, he does go the right way, but he's nowhere near. He actually dives onto his stomach, which I think is hilarious. Look <laughs> 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 so, for a player him to go in there. You know, he's wearing wearing Kushak's jersey and he's wearing Kushak's clothes. And, what do you think, um, Ferguson? Would have said after the game, hair dryer to Kushak, or are you just being like, oh, just one of them games? He, he was the opposite. It was just he treated. He actually blamed the referee. For not rewarding United a stonewall penalty in the first half when Ronaldo was impeded. And if you look back at that, if anyone looks back at that, Ronaldo is suplexed um, <laughs> in the box. So was, was it a for, fisherman or a German? I think it was a fisherman. So Sir Alex was quite right, rightly to feel agreed. But he also probably would have blamed uh, he would have blamed his players finishing as well because they had numerous chances. Just one of those FA Cup stories. Great for the neutral. Great for the clubs involved. Um, something different for the FA Cup keeps the kind of dreamers and, and the hopes alive for the for clubs as well. You know, it wasn't a competition dominated by the big four of England, who were four of the best teams in Europe at the time as well. So, um, not a refreshing run. And in terms of Portsmouth, Portsmouth had some excellent players. Yeah, you know, Sol Campbell, Canu, David James had really sort of hit his peak in his later years. Sully Montari in midfield, who went on to win the treble with Inter Milan. Some some very good players. Big Brucey's bedtime bath. Nice and warm. Full of suds. A scented candle a rubber duck. In the bath. Brucey don't give a dreams of passes to be. Dreams of passes to be. I've got the story ready. Can you just check that Brucey's all right in the bath?
Steve, Steve, come on, it's bath time. And have I got a surprise for you. Your former teammate and Hull assistant manager, Mike Phelan, is joining you in the bath tonight. And I also got you both a couple of inflatable FA Cups to play with. It's not for Mike, though. He likes to play with an empty bottle of matey bubble bath. I hope the two of you enjoy this little treat. And I've got the towels ready for you afterwards. Enjoy, Brucey. Okay, Brucey and Mike. That's a tight squeeze for you too. This week's story comes from Harry Redknapp. 2008 was the season we won the FA Cup, beating Cardiff City 1-0. I know in my CV this stands as the highlight of my career, but believe me, I'm as proud, if not prouder, of other achievements. Keeping Portsmouth in the Premier League, winning promotion with Bournemouth. I think these are every bit as special as my big day at Wembley and success in the lottery of a cup competition. Not that it wasn't wonderful. The elite clubs are so powerful now that very few managers get a chance to win one of the big prizes. So to do that was obviously very, very special. Beating Manchester United away in the quarterfinals was a memorable day too. They had a good team out. Cristiano Ronaldo, Paul Scholes, Wayne Rooney, Carlos Tevez. But we deserved our win from a penalty by Sully Montari. It meant I had knocked Manchester United out of the FA Cup with three clubs. Bournemouth, West Ham United and Portsmouth. I'm proud of that too. We beat West Brom in the semi-final on the 5th of April. And then it was back to Wembley the following month to play Cardiff, the first Welsh team to reach the final since they were last there in 1927. We had some big match experience in the side. Canu had won the Champions League, the UEFA Cup, the Premier League and the FA Cup. But for many of the others, this was the game of their lives. On the night before, to ease the tension, I took the players to a little Italian restaurant in Henley. I booked it out and ordered in a karaoke machine for later. I'll never forget Herman Ryderson, our Icelandic left back, turning up in a full Elvis Presley outfit and bringing the house down. He did the greatest impression. I'd ask Kenny Lynch, an old mate of mine, to do a few gags for the boys later. And after watching Herman, he turned to me and said, how the hell am I meant to follow that? Herman had the lot, the Elvis wig, the white suit, the gold chains, the glasses, the moves. The only trouble was his voice was horrendous. But that just made it even funnier. Herman used to live near me in Poole. When him and his wife had their friends over from Iceland, they would always start a sing-song in our local restaurant. They were brilliant fun. Sometimes preparation is about more than just a tactics board. That karaoke night completely relaxed us, and despite the slender scoreline, we were well worth our victory in the FA Cup final. So, even without my friend Milan, I had a wonderful run at Portsmouth the second time around. In fact, the only sour note concerned events happening off the field. By 2007, I was the subject of a criminal investigation, but a year earlier, the BBC news programme Panorama had linked my name to an investigation into corruption in football. What a load of rubbish it was. I was accused of tapping up Andy Todd of Blackburn Rovers, and they suggested that Kevin Bond was taking backhanders to make certain transfers happen. It was an absolute farce. I wanted to sue the BBC when the programme was broadcast, but those things only end up dragging on and becoming a lot of time, money and hassle. So eventually, I let it go. I know Sir Alex Ferguson didn't speak to the BBC for years when they made damaging accusations about his son, but that's not my style. I couldn't blame the sports guys for something Panorama did, but that doesn't mean I wasn't upset by it. Well, Stephen, Mike, that is the end of the story. Mike, how did you find it in the bath? It is a more relaxed environment. It's definitely more of a, a personal 
you know, you get that personal touch, that personal feel. It's amazing how it's different. It is different. There's a nice chilled out feel. Some, there's some fortunate we can't do that a little bit more, but I schedule this such. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're both busy men, busy schedules, as you've said, but hopefully we can make it happen where you and Bruce are back in the bath together sometime soon. <laughs> Okay, now it's time to pick another player in our Simpsons Lookalike 11, and it's my pick this week, and it's the final pick to make up our Simpsons 11. We needed a defender, lads, and I went with someone who a lot of people may not know, but I'll tell you a little bit about him. His name is Alexi Lalas, and he is a standout defender for the United States of America in 1994 for their home World Cup. He went on to become the first US player ever to play in Serie A, making 44 appearances for Padova before going back to join the newly formed MLS with the New England Revolution. The reason I've picked Alexi Lalas is because he is the spit of the Simpsons' evil genius and the ideal boss for any man, Hank Scorpio. Oh! He's got a big ginger bop and a big ginger (laughs) beard. And there's not too many footballers have both. I'll run through the whole 11 in a minute, lads. But Alexi Lalas, another reason that I picked him, Dan, is because he is also a fan of of hammocks. Do you know where you could pick up a hammock, Dan? Hammocks or us. Uh, Right. Any other hammock stores? A hammock central. Right. Is is there, Matchman, is there a hammock district? There is. There's a hammock uh, district down on on Hammock Avenue. It's actually down by the, it's actually down by the, the, the hammock region is that on third i think it's on third yeah right okay i'm just going to run through the 11 in goals we have peter McBee and Schmeichel. we have a back three of alexi hank scorpio lalas alan skinner hansen and julian kearney dix the defensive midfielder is attilio monte burns lombardo right center midfield giles jacques de boro grimondi and left center midfield diego the yellow weasel simone attacking midfielder David, Dr. Nick Silva. Right forward, Ollie Wendell Solskjaer. Striker, Olivier Freddy Quimby Giroux. And left forward, Luis Cletus the Slackjawed Yokel Suarez. 1 11, lads. Are you proud? Very proud of this team. I like the 3 4 3. I like our front three. I think it's got a little bit of everything. And uh, a little bit mad at the back, but Skinner will sort the other two out. And with McBean in the bags. Do you even need a defence? Very good question, Dan. We might not need a defence, but what we do need is a gaffer. Oh! And Matchman, it's your pick next week. Have you got a gaffer in mind? I do indeed, Steve. I've actually got two, so I'm tossing and turning to decide who's going to lead the Simpsons 11 in the battle. Do you have a Evans and Hulier situation, or will you choose an outright manager? Oh, I never thought of that co-manager uh, deal, Dan. Oh, you've actually got me thinking now. Jeez, I'm not going to sleep tonight thinking about what's going to happen here. Co-managers of the Simpsons 11. Well, you are the chief executive of the Simpsons 11, so you can do whatever you want. Leave it with me. Okay, great stuff. And on your way out, if you want to kill somebody, that would really help me a lot. So that is the end of this week's pod, folks. We hope you've enjoyed our giant killings of FA Cup 2008. Next week, it's our final issue of the season, but don't worry, we're going out on top. We're going out with World Cup 
2002. Dan, what have we got in store? Oh, we have so much in store with the 2002 World Cup. Two countries hosting. We have the world's best players on show. We have bust-ups, betrayals, wonderful goals, a legend rising back into the game, and uh, so much to talk about. I can't even think at the moment. Matchman, what are you looking forward to about the World Cup in Korea, Japan? A couple of mad upsets in the group stages, obviously, the, the decline of France, who were the holders, how the hosts fared. Also, the Turks, they got to a semi-final. Who would have thought that? And Ronaldo's redemption. So, it's good night from me, and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush the Matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Mush. See you next week.